Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture story. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this episode of the Global Marketing Show. And it's going to be a fun talk today because AJ and I just can't get enough words in when we're, we're not recording. Cause, so we have lots <laughs> of stories to tell and things to talk about. So AJ Wilcox is the owner of B2 Linked. And, and um, he is a, and he's, he's the owner and the founder, and he's also a board member of Utah's Digital Marketing Collective. And his firm specializes on doing LinkedIn ads only. And the reason I have him on the show today is that they've done ads all over the world um, across many locations and languages. So I'm fascinated to hear an expert talk about this. Um, so AJ, I know you are from Utah. And you did a, a mission outside of the United States. So do you want to tell us about where you went internationally and how you, how you got started in global business? So we'll start with your mission. Yeah, sounds great. So uh, for those who don't know, I, um, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You may have heard of the Mormons. And uh, they serve... Um, at least most members serve missions uh, for two years and you basically apply to serve a mission and it's on your own dime and they tell you where you're going to go. So I had, I had no, no idea where I was going to go. And I, I opened up what they call the mission call. And I saw that it was calling me to Donetsk, Ukraine for two years wow. speaking Russian. <laughs> That's fantastic. So tell me about your, your mission call. Like how I know uh, some friends of mine did a whole big party and they had people from all over when they opened up the envelope. So I've heard of all sorts of fun stories. So how did you announce it or read it? Yeah, pretty similarly. Uh, the, the call came in the mail at like one or two. And so I let all my friends know. And uh, we had like probably 30 people in, in our, uh, in my like childhood home, uh, like at that night waiting to open it. So, uh, and then I, I opened it and just read it live. It was pretty cool. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. Cause you have no idea where you're going. So what was your first thought when you heard the Ukraine? I, you know, I, I took Spanish for all of high school and junior high. I love the Spanish language. Um, my brother served a mission speaking Spanish in Bolivia. My dad served a mission in Argentina speaking Spanish. So I was just primed and ready to get a call somewhere to South America. And then when I got called to Ukraine, I was like, where's that? <laughs> <laughs> they don't speak Spanish there. Wait, time out. Oh, how funny. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you learn enough Russian to go? Well, you go to, uh, they call it the Missionary Training Center. So I went to a place where, you know, we're very, very immersed in the language. You have um, a group of people, you're all learning together. And we learned for six weeks. And then we went to the country and then you're placed with a companion who is very experienced. And so they can kind of help you, but you really, really have to learn by speaking. <laughs> and so, and it was so like, do you, yeah. did you learn Ukrainian or did you learn Russian or what language did you focus on? 
I was on the eastern half of Ukraine, and at the time they spoke pretty much only Russian, and so that's where I that's where I went and spoke. Uh, but now because of the the like basically war with Russia, um, Ukraine has gotten really nationalistic and they've started, I went back two years ago and they'd renamed all the straight streets like with Ukrainian generals names and, uh, and I, I couldn't find my way around and everyone was speaking Ukrainian, but. <laughs> wow. Now, is this your first trip international? I, you know, I grew up in Arizona and so we went to Mexico for like spring breaks and, you know, vacations and stuff. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I was loving Spanish, so I'd take every opportunity to talk to someone as possible. But this was my first, like, real international experience. Okay, okay. And so what did you think when you got there? Because you're used to the U.S., you're used to Mexico and the Ukraine. I've heard it's absolutely beautiful, but I've never been there. I'd like to go. But it's a very, very different culture than what you had experienced. So what was your feeling and experience? Well, the odd things about it is that Ukraine was probably a first world country back like during the Soviet era. And then it's um, it pretty much decayed since then. So when you show up, you're, you're seeing what, what I call the second world country, but it's a, a people that are very, very poor. They're stuck in, in old mindsets. Um, but, you know, but in uh, infrastructure that you'd, see from like the 70s and 80s uh these big big concrete skyscrapers where everyone lived and um so, so that was number one and then number two was just the people there uh we we like to call them like they were m&ms because they have a hard outer shell but like you know they seem kind of rude they seem kind of like not interested in you but once you break through that shell, once you start connecting with them personally, they become just the sweetest people. They will do anything for you. And um, so, yeah, it was interesting experience culturally. Oh, that's so fascinating. I interviewed Armand Andade earlier on the, uh, you know, in the earlier podcast, and he, he said coconuts and peaches, you know. The, oh, interesting. <laughs> with the same concept of the, the M&Ms. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I'd never heard that about M&Ms, so that's, that's <laughs> cute. Yeah, so, uh, so what did you learn in your time over in the Ukraine? Oh, so much stuff. I mean, this was my first time being away from home. Um, and so I learned a lot, like I learned how to do my own laundry, which is embarrassing (laughs) to say, but like, I, I, I learned like my own cooking and my own shopping and my own budgeting. So all of those things were, were, were great. Um, obviously learned the, the Russian language, which for those of you who don't know, it doesn't matter where in the sentence you say each word. Um, like it's, uh, but depending on what you're trying to say, every verb, every noun, and every adjective uh, gets modified by what it is you're trying to say. And so you could literally say the, say the sentence backwards. Like, like, instead of I'm going to the store, you could do store to going I'm. Like, uh, so it's, as you're speaking it, it's, it's kind of like solving equations in your mind uh, actively. It was, it's really fun language. So there's no order. So you could say like store I'm going. Yeah, exactly. And, and it would be totally proper as long as you, you knew to say like, they call it the directive case, the, uh, the directive I'm going to the store. Um, if you said that wrong, then they'd be like, wait, 
you are a store? What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd have to get the directive, not, and so is there a, so it's directive, but they also have past tense and past present tense and all those that you have to get right. Yeah. You have seven, what they call cases, which is like, uh, what, depending on what, uh, the, the person doing the action is, is doing, whether they're of something or by the means of something or going to something. So you, you change those and then, yeah, they, they've got, you know, uh, cases, they have masculine, feminine and, and neuter words, mm-hmm. um, which is really fun. So. Cool oh, that's great. <laughs> so what words do they have in Ukrainian that they don't have a direct translation for in English? Oh, uh, one that I absolutely love is called nilzya. And, and it kind of means something that's a no-no or something that you don't do. It's not as strong as like, like uh, it's against the law or anything like that, but it's something like, you, you just don't do that. And in English, we don't have that. So you know, if, if a kid were trying to reach for something on the stove, you go, no, no, nils, yeah. And, um, and it, it's a single word, whereas in English, we'd have to spit out a sentence like, no, 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 don't touch the hot stove. <laughs> <laughs> nils, yeah. Oh, I love it. And it's nils, yeah? Yeah, uh, nils, yeah. Nils, yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that. Is there any other fun words like that? Oh, there, there totally is. Uh, every so often, I'll, I'll want to say something in, in Russian and I'll realize that no one around me would, would understand. Uh, I'll, I'll think of what that other word is that comes up like all the time. Um, I'll, I'll think of it and I'll let you know. You think, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. So you, so that was right after high school that you went on your mission? Yeah, pretty much. I did like one semester of college then I was out for two years and came back. Okay. So then you go to college and you decided to major in marketing, so you knew that you wanted to do that early on. Well, the evolution of it was I was really liking my psychology classes in high school. I took like yeah. an, an, an AP psychology and really liked it. So I thought I wanted to do something with psychology. But then as soon as I lived in Ukraine and, and spoke Russian, I went, wow, I bet Russia is going to be like a, a pretty big deal internationally with business. So maybe I should do something with international business. And it, it wasn't until I realized, you know, like I, I probably spoke, I, I was decent when, when I compared myself to others who were in my same position, but mm-hmm. still I wouldn't have called myself fluent. I probably spoke like a, a fourth or a fifth grader. So uh, I, I didn't really want to <laughs> go, uh, go do business in a language that I'd only talked about religion and like, like, pleasantries. Um, and, and that's when I found a, a marketing class where the teacher, I, I love cars and the teacher just, um, he worked in automotive and he shared all of these marketing examples about cars and I was just <sighs> transfixed. I loved it. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So the subject came alive to you because of the examples he used. Exactly. Yeah, that's so funny. We had a strategy teacher when I was in MBA school who always used war metaphors, and I got so tired of war metaphors. I was like, can't you bring it to anything else? But uh, yeah, so it's interesting, the examples that a teacher can use. Yeah, 
And I'm sure three quarters of the kids in that class were like, come on, think of something that's not Audi or BMW. But boy, I was like locked in. This was my class. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. And the other thing that I saw with marketing classes is so many people use consumer products and not business to business services. You know, like a lot of the Harvard uh, case studies are consumer products. Absolutely. And I'm like, I am all about business to business services. So let's get some case studies on that. So, yes. Okay. And this, the thing about B2B that I'm sure you know, and, and everyone else who's listening probably already knows, but uh, business to business is not sexy. They're, they're not the brands that we talk about at the dinner table at night, but yeah. boy, that's where, that's where the, the big money comes from. 72% of the Fortune 1000 are B2B. So you go, you know, do I want to build my career where the money is or where, you know, with a sexy brand that everyone wears on their wrist? Wait a minute. Go back and say that. 72 of the Fortune what? 72% of the Fortune 1000 are B2B or at least have a, a, a solid B2B element in them. And so if you're looking at who's got the money, like, B2B with these giant deal sizes that deal with budgets rather than trying to coax money out of someone's pocketbook, uh, that, that won me over. I love B2B now, and I, I wish it were in more examples of HBR articles. <laughs> That's fascinating. I never knew that. Yeah, I can totally, uh, I, I can send you the, the research. Um, oh, I'd love I to. Yeah, on. we'll put it in the show notes below. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, well, that makes me feel a lot better about love and B2B services, although it would yes. have changed my <laughs> trajectory of what I've done in my past. Okay, so you get into B2B marketing, and what do you do when you come out? Well, I mean, you get in, you major in marketing. And then yeah, you, I majored yeah. in marketing, and this was back in, like, I graduated in 2008, so at the time, digital marketing wasn't really taught in schools. Like, I didn't know it existed, and so... When I had in one of my marketing classes, a guest lecturer came in and talked about search engine optimization. And it was as he was talking, you know, I'd been wondering, like, what do I want to do after graduation? Because I love tech. I've been working these tech jobs. And he comes in and talks about how marketing and tech, you know, uh, are, are so intertwined with SEO. And I went, that's what I want to do. So I went up after class and just begged this poor man for an internship. And, uh, and he brought me into his agency and taught me search engine optimization and Google ads and, uh, and how to build websites like HTML and CSS. And yeah. after that, I was hooked. I, I, I love everything digital marketing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so fabulous. And the growth. I mean, we're just talking the last 10 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like a veteran being in something, I, I think, you know, 13 <laughs> years in, and I'm like, wow, yeah, I'm a veteran in digital marketing. Like, what industry could you claim being a veteran after 13 years? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you're a veteran and a newbie because if you don't, okay, so then that takes us, you know, so we'll jump ahead to you're a veteran and you get all this experience with SEO and the different platforms, but you niche down right into LinkedIn ads. So how long have you have be, have you had beta linked? So it's been a little over six and a half years. And the, the interesting thing is if you would have asked me 10 years ago, like, you know, are, would you start a company focused on just LinkedIn ads? I would have said, no, absolutely not. Like that sounds like a terrible idea. But what happened is I had this experience with SEO and Google ads and display advertising. 
and you know, four years into my career, I'm, I'm again, a veteran <laughs> and I, I got recruited into a company before they, uh, it was pre IPO, uh, tech company here locally in Utah. And they brought me in to run all of their digital marketing. So I, I go to the CMO on my first day and I'm laying out my strategies and she's like, Oh, all that sounds great. Go ahead and execute it. But just so you know, we started a pilot with LinkedIn ads about two weeks ago. So see what you can do with it. And I saluted and said, yes, ma'am. Uh, where in the back of my mind, I was thinking, what is a LinkedIn ads? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I didn't want to look stupid to my new boss. And so I, I dove in and, and uh, realistically, I took my understanding of Google ads and you know, built my LinkedIn ads through the same principles. And about two weeks later, one of my sales reps came up and said, hey, AJ, we don't know what you're doing over here, but we are fighting over your leads. Keep it up. And wow. I went, okay, what leads is he talking about? I, so I went into our, our CRM system and lo and behold, uh, uh, you know, a hundred percent of the leads that he'd mentioned came from LinkedIn. And I went, okay, maybe there's something to this. So I kept investing and kept investing over the next two and a half years. And I, I grew it to become LinkedIn's largest spending account worldwide. Um, developed a whole bunch of really good relationships inside of LinkedIn. So when it was time to end with that company, I was like, okay, I, I've literally run the biggest account there is. I've spent more money on this platform than anyone else. Maybe that's monetizable. And that's when, you know, six and a half years ago, I started B2Link. Oh my gosh, that is such a hoot. <laughs> so what, what kind of business was it that you were working for there? Uh, it was a SaaS software business, also B2B. And then that was actually my first real introduction to B2B. Um, because I'd worked in ad agencies before with a lot of B2C products. So I had a learning curve. <laughs> okay, right. Because you had to learn. I mean, and SaaS was just coming out 10 years ago. And so it was B2B, it was SaaS, it was LinkedIn ads, and you just grabbed a hold and wrote it and mastered it. Yeah. And, yeah. and to be clear, like, you know, we start businesses usually about something we're passionate about. Uh, yeah. I, I am kind of passionate about LinkedIn ads, but, but I didn't start the company because I was passionate about LinkedIn ads. I'm passionate about the results that the company and clients got to see. And if I saw those kinds of results from like taking out garbage, I'd be like, I'd be like the CEO of a garbage collection company and I could be just as passionate about that. I, I care about the results. Oh my gosh, that is so fantastic. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Like if you get something, it's, yeah, I'm stumbling over my words, but exactly what you're talking about is you, you could, it could have been Google ads or it could have been Facebook because you had all that technology. They're generally similar, you know, they're, they've niched off so much, yeah. but you get the passion about helping the client get the results that they want. Yes. And LinkedIn I mean, ads, are, they are so difficult because the platform is about four years behind Facebook technology wise. So the platform's difficult to use and it's also expensive when you compare it to Facebook. So most advertisers, uh, you know, they're spending more, which means it's risky and, uh, and it's harder to use. So most marketers are going to say, ah, you know what? I'd rather stick to Google and Facebook that I already know. And so LinkedIn is very underappreciated, but you know, I feel like we've cracked the nut and now like we've solved the formula. We know how to make them work. And so now we're just going crazy on that. Okay. So we've been toying around. We might as well use us as a case study. 
Um, and, and, and if you're listening to this, hang on, because we are going to get into the value of LinkedIn and global advertising, but I want to make sure we understand LinkedIn. So we've been thinking about getting into paid advertisements because we do, we get a lot of referrals and we do a lot on social that's unpaid and we, you know, the people that we get in are absolutely fantastic, but we keep hearing that, oh, you should do paid ads. So we looked at Facebook, somebody suggested that. And then uh, we talked to a Facebook expert who's like, no, you really don't want to do that because it's more B2C on there. And so he's like, you should go over to LinkedIn and Google, but it's really expensive and I don't do that. And so, you know, we're, here we are, a language services company. It's not an impulse buy. Usually, you know, somebody goes, oh, I need to do, you know, we created this website, now we need to translate it. How the heck do I do that? So I wrote a book to tell people how to do it. But how do you catch them at that moment of, I need to translate that, I'm in a hurry, how do I do that? So is that a LinkedIn ad? Is that a Google ad? How would you go about thinking about that? So there are two aspects here. Um, I love the acronym BANT that you, you may have heard of. Uh, it, it's... It stands for budget, authority, need, and timing. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's basically a lead scoring, uh, I'll call it an algorithm, but it's, it's, it's not really. It's like how a lot of sales and marketing teams will, will grade their leads. And so what you have are search types of platforms like Google, whether that's organic Google or, uh, or Google ads or Microsoft ads, where people are searching by the keyword. And so what that means is, the, the leads, when they come in, they're going to score really high on the N and the T in BANT. It's the need and the timing. They need it, otherwise they wouldn't be searching for it. And the timing's right, otherwise they wouldn't be searching right now. So the cool part about using search is you can get those leads when people are ready. They're already thinking about language translation services. Uh, when they go and search, search, start searching keywords that are related, then you get them. What you don't have control over in that case, though, is who the searcher is. Like, is this the person, uh, like B and the A in Bant, uh, is that, do you know that this company has the budget for this? Uh, do you know that this person has the authority to, to make this purchase? Or are you talking to an, an administrative assistant or a janitor or, you know, anything else? So LinkedIn and social is exactly the opposite. You can narrow in on people by their, their budget and their authority but then we lose the, the opportunity to target them by, by keyword, by their, their need and their timing. So oh. I think they work so well together. Oh, interesting. So you're saying like Facebook is really good for the BNA and Google and LinkedIn is good for the N and T. Well, I think any social platform where you can narrow in on who someone is, is probably going to give you the, the B and the A. So Facebook, LinkedIn, like they'll both do, uh, do something there. Uh, but the keyword-based targeting and advertising like Google and, and Microsoft, um, they're going to really score high on the N and the T, the need and the time. Oh, I think I'm getting it now. So LinkedIn is good at both of B, A, N, and T. Facebook is good on B and A, and Google is good on N and T. Well, I wouldn't say LinkedIn's good at the, at the need and the timing. I would think they're pretty square in the, the budget and the authority. Um, but you can use things like, like skills and interests to try to narrow in on the, 
the need and the timing a little bit better. But I look at these like search and social platforms and people are saying, oh, should we use Google or should we use LinkedIn? And what it really comes down to is both play a very different role in the funnel and both can be incredibly valuable. I would just run, I would run a test on both and see like, are, are we getting, you know, where are we getting the lowest cost per you know, really qualified lead here? And then go bigger on that channel. Okay, so I didn't get it at all, but now, now I think I'm getting it. Is that LinkedIn? And, okay, so search is Google. Yeah. Google or any of the search engines. And then social would be the LinkedIn or the Facebook paid, paid advertising. Yeah. And so coordinating your, you know, your Google paid advertising with your LinkedIn paid advertising or Facebook advertising. Okay, yeah. so how would you determine when to use LinkedIn or Facebook, or do you think all three of them go together? Well, with LinkedIn specifically, we know four things about it. We know, number one, it's pretty expensive compared to other ad channels. So we like to say, if you've got a, a lifetime value of $15,000 or more, then you, know, you should definitely consider LinkedIn ads. Uh, if you have a lower lifetime value, maybe they've priced you out of the market. So that's, that's worth understanding. We also know that on LinkedIn, people aren't actively searching for what it is you do. So you've got to get their attention. You're, you're kind of being interruptive uh, to them. And, and they're usually on a mission. They're on their way to go do something. So you've got to have something really of benefit to them. So having a... Um, some kind of a lead magnet, some kind of a, an offer for them where it's going to catch their attention, stop them in their tracks because there's so much value here. Like that's really helpful for LinkedIn. We also know because it's expensive, you need more data. Like, you know, if, if it takes uh, 800 clicks before you find out for sure, like, yes, here's, here's how much we're going to pay for a lead and here's the quality of it. Um, on Facebook to get that same 800 clicks is going to cost less than on LinkedIn. So you've got to approach it with a larger budget. Okay. So there's no, <laughs> that's why they all go in together. Exactly. And the coolest part about it in how these channels play well together. If you look at Google and Facebook, they have the best retargeting um, platform on the planet, that, that ability to, stay in front of someone when they've taken some kind of action and they're a little bit warmer of an audience with you. Mm -hmm. So if you could imagine you get traffic from LinkedIn where you know who these people are, you know, they're the right titles and seniorities and company size and the right um, industry and all that. Mm -hmm. And then you get them to your website where then Facebook and Google can retarget them and stay in front of them no matter where they are on the web or in social. So uh, I, I really don't look at the, the, platforms is competing. I look at them as being very additive. Okay. So your agency just specializes in LinkedIn ads. So what do you do when you have somebody that has that additive need of Facebook or Google? I, then we give them really tight instructions on what to pass to their, their agency who handles Google and or Facebook. Um, maybe in the future we'll, we'll offer like running those retargeting campaigns for them, but I, I sure like sticking to LinkedIn right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you've picked out your niche and then you have partners that can help them with the other area. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a, that is a wise business. People know what you do and what you're, they're coming to you for. And so do people normally start in one place or another? 
Yeah, I would say generally most people start somewhere and, and it's usually Google or Facebook because um, both platforms have done an incredible job of growth. Back when they first started, they set their prices really, really low. So everyone who tried them out had success. And of course, when you have success, you go and tell your friends and you speak at conferences about like how to do what you're doing and, and word spreads. And so the, the level of competition uh, on both Google and Facebook grew really organically. They started at like five cents a click <laughs> on Google and, uh, and now it's up to you know, several dollars or you might pay you know, tens or hundreds of dollars for a click on Google, but it grew from five cents a click. Uh, whereas, you know, LinkedIn started out at $2 per click and then it, it's gone up from there. So LinkedIn has always been more expensive than Facebook. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, so what kind of companies do you work with? I would say mostly, uh, mostly business to business, but I call them high value lead generation businesses. So when you generate a lead and this person could close, whether they're B2B or B2C, uh, are they going to be worth $15,000 or more to the business? And then it's pretty much a slam dunk. Uh, but it also works quite well for, uh, for uh, you know, white collar recruiting of any kind. And so we work with quite a few recruiting companies and, and talent sourcing companies and also higher education. Um, MBA programs specifically do a really good job of, of uh, acquiring people on LinkedIn who you have a bachelor's degree, but you don't yet have anything more advanced than that. You can say, cool, let me show you LinkedIn ads and try to get you to my school. Oh, fascinating. Okay, that makes sense. What about cars? I mean, you got the love of cars. Did they, does that go in there? I, you know, I, I have seen that uh, Mercedes and Land Rover and Jaguar are, are advertising on LinkedIn. So uh, I sure hope to get those accounts at some point because <laughs> I would be very passionate about them. Um, but generally, uh, I would say you've got to make a lot of money on a car. I, I could see Ferrari and Maserati advertising on LinkedIn. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> All right. So if anybody has connections into the high end car companies and who runs their social media platforms, you got to connect them to AJ because uh, he's the car guy and the LinkedIn expert. So uh, hopefully you'll get a connection off that. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, I'll keep I'll keep thinking about who I know in that industry and see if I could come up with anybody to help you out. Okay, so it's really interesting. So it has to be a high value 15,000 life time revenue or profit yeah, I, I, it could you could say deal size you could say lifetime value it could be profit could be gross um, however you define it, it it's to me it's just you've got to bring someone in who's worth a lot of money to the company because if you're going to pay you know one to three thousand uh, dollars in ads to close a deal most people don't want to just break even, they want to make a significant profit. So if you make $15,000 over the lifetime, but you only paid one to 3,000 to get that deal, then there's plenty of room to pay sales commissions and an agency to manage and all that. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So what's the, so if that's LinkedIn, you're paying one to $3,000 to close a deal, what's the comparable measurement for Facebook or Google? Well, that's the interesting part is that when you look at LinkedIn, you're paying eight to $12 per click, but you look at Facebook and you might be paying two to $3 per click. So you'd think, oh man, LinkedIn's too expensive. 
But if you're watching what these leads are doing after they become a lead, LinkedIn, you were able to, to so tightly target by who someone is, um, by the level of budget, you bring in a much higher quality lead. So what we find, and we, we have a, a case study where we're building right now about this, where we're bringing in the biggest deals that a company has ever had uh, through LinkedIn, and we're paying you know one to three thousand dollars per one of those closed deals, uh, maybe even higher. But Facebook, even though they're paying a third or a fourth as much per click, the leads aren't of the same quality, and so they don't graduate down the sales funnel nearly as well. And so we find that they're paying you know six, seven, eight thousand dollars per closed deal with Facebook. And so in that case, if you're you know, six uh, or seven. $8,000. So they're paying a lot more per closed yeah. deal. Yeah. They're not really? paying as much for those initial clicks. But when you start getting those people on the phone and realize that Facebook's not great at getting in front of people by who they are professionally, but LinkedIn is. Wow. Okay. And so how does that compare to Google then? Google, it's kind of hard to compare because it's all over the board. Yeah. Uh, some, some industries, I would say, if you go on to Google and you're paying about a dollar per click, you're in a cheap industry, uh, which is fantastic. But um, you start getting into the business to business stuff, you've probably got to be paying like uh, 15 to $80 per click um, for those kinds of things like CRMs and, and uh, IT services. And then when you start getting into like attorney services, there are, you can pay four or $500 per click or, or maybe even more. So uh, it just depends on your industry. Wow. I mean, that's really separated out now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, HVAC, uh, this is the one that really surprised me, like home services companies, they're yeah. paying 80 to $100 per click. And you're like, wow, for someone to come and you know, repair my furnace that costs, you know, $300. That's how much they're paying to, to lure me in. It's crazy. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. not the big HVAC systems and like large companies that would have consistent needs. This would be like a homeowner. System? Yeah. Yeah. And of course they're hoping because you can't separate by what, what someone's search query was, whether right. they're a business looking to install a big system in a, in a, in a, a big commercial building or if it's just a homeowner who just needs a tune up on there, you know, before winter hits, um, yeah. you can't tell. So you just, you pay $80 per click and you hope that at some point you bring in a big fish or two that pays for the whole thing. Yeah. Cause it's been interesting when we've looked at it, we, you know, we dabbled in some Google ads a while ago, but in the translation interpretation industry, there's, there's, unlimited search terms because you can have Spanish, English, English, Spanish, translation, translator, tra interpreting, interpreter, you know, so the list just goes marketing, translation, technical, technology, te translation, and, you know, so we have our keywords that we look for for all our, you know, organic marketing that we're doing, yeah. but it gets kind of, by the time you test all that and look all that, it gets to be quite, you know, you need a PhD in, you know, <laughs> SEO language <laughs> to Agreed. look at it. Yeah. So what do you, what do you recommend for companies like that, that have a ton of search terms and how to balance off the, you know, not paying for the $600 per click <laughs> versus the $1 per click, but getting the return on that, or is it just an iterative process you keep going through? 
there are two things that I, I would do in that case. Uh, when you're doing your keyword research, Google will tell you or Microsoft will tell you uh, like the level of competition of that keyword. So yeah. if you say, hey, this is just me dipping my toe in the water for this, this translation services company. Um, you know, I don't want to spend huge money here. You could just go and select all the keywords that are really low competition and just dip your toe in the water with, uh, with those. The other thing you can do is once you've found those keywords, um, you could even put in some of the more like high competition keywords, but just bid so low that Google's not going to show, show your ad over, you know, someone else who's really experienced, like the, the more like competitive companies who've been doing this for a while. So if you do both of those things, like go for, for the lower competition terms and limit how much you're, you're willing to spend per click. So Google's only sending you, um, you know, the, the cheaper traffic. I think those are two good ways to, to, you know, figure out if it's going to be a channel that works. Huh. Okay. I didn't know that they could send the cheaper traffic. What is that? Once the other people use up all their budget, then they start sending it over to the cheaper traffic channel. Yeah, yeah, could be. And the more experienced advertisers, they're also figuring out things like um, what time of day to bid higher or bid lower. So if they're bidding $10 per click um, from noon to one because people, uh, you know, don't or they search for this kind of stuff on their lunch breaks, then, uh, you know, you might not get the click during that time. But then when they lower it down to three or four in the afternoon, then you might be eligible to sneak in there. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. They have really advanced since I've looked at this. This is amazing. Okay. But we're talking about you now. So LinkedIn advertising, and we've talked about, it's about a thousand dollars to 3000 to close yet. You have figured out a little secret about doing some international LinkedIn ads. So talk to us about the global market. Yeah. So for those who don't know, because LinkedIn is based in the U.S. and, you know, the U.S. had uh, you know, the, the biggest uptake in professionals creating their own profiles on LinkedIn, North America grew very quickly from an ads perspective and became very expensive very quickly. And really anywhere in the world that speaks English was a, uh, an obvious expansion point for the large B2B brands who are like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll add on, uh, you know, New Zealand and Australia and, um, and the UK. So if you're advertising in North America um, to people in the English language, you're probably going to pay eight to $12 per click. But if you start looking internationally and especially in different languages, you find that those costs drop off quite quickly. We've found that you can pay like one to $2 per click in South America and you can pay um, like, you know, six to $8 per click in Western Europe and three to $4 per click in Eastern Europe. Um, so really, you know, if you've heard that LinkedIn ads are expensive and you are a, a global marketing company, definitely check them out and see because you may be able to get a huge discount on your traffic just because it's not as competitive elsewhere. That's fascinating. So you can get the same. So you also have to think about the reach of the language. So if you're talking about South America, one to $2 per click, do you have to do, can you do it by language or do you uh -huh. have to do it by country? Yeah, you can do both. You can say, 
you could have one campaign that says I'm just targeting Chile, um, Spanish speakers, and you could have another campaign that's I'm just targeting Chile, but people whose profiles are set to English. And in each of those campaigns, you could give them a, a an ad in the language that they prefer. Um, it, it can be quite quite advanced. Okay, and so how is the return on that? That one is, I mean, it's hard to talk about returns on LinkedIn just because uh, we as an agency, um, we haven't had more than I'd say 10 uh, clients advertise in South America. And then for any of those to like filter down to where they start telling us about their closed deals, usually they'll tell us about like their leads and their quality leads that come in. But usually we're not getting all the data about closed deals. So, right. so to, to, yeah, so yeah. no, so return on that, we can talk number of leads. It doesn't have to be, you know, closed deals because they're so much out of your control there. So, you know, what, what would be the comparison of doing English ads in the U.S. versus Spanish ads in South America for the dollar investment? Yeah, I think you could expect a really similar conversion rates on the back end to, to what you'd experience in North America, maybe even higher because in, in other cultures, it, uh, advertising might be looked at more favorably. Um, we're a little bit skeptical here in North America. So if, if the click costs, let's say a, a sixth or a seventh as much, then your cost per conversion and your cost per sale is going to be a, a sixth or a seventh as much as well. Okay, so I'm just thinking about that. So my, my investment is, okay, one to $2 versus eight to, eight 12. to 12. Yeah. Okay, so just say my investment is a dollar per click versus $8 per click. Yeah. And then do you get as many clicks as you would in the United States? Ooh, volume really does depend on, on how big your audience size is. So usually as we get into other areas other than North America, you know, North America is like big states and, and everything. You start getting into Europe where the German language, you might have one or two countries. Right. Um, so you'll end up with smaller audience sizes for sure, but um, it depends on the business, like what a a German uh, a German company is worth to them, and um, what sort of appetite they have for other languages and other countries if they want to go big. Okay, so that's what you're saying is is the investment per click is a lot less, the volume may be smaller, but your return is one out of every six clicks would be business. Well, it, it would be like, yeah. you'd, you'd pay a sixth, a seventh, an eighth uh, of what you would in North America. And then however you'd, you'd close a deal from that. You know, if, it, if it's one to $3,000 in ads to close a deal in North America, um, you might be in the low hundreds of dollars to close a deal in South America. And maybe those deals would be smaller. Um, you know, maybe South American companies wouldn't have the same kinds of budgets. But again, that's like, you know, for your company to figure out. But boy, when I start looking at costs per click to, to reach really high ranking people in South America, it, it looks really good. Okay. Okay. So for one, that's what I was trying to get at. So to get, and maybe all you listeners have figured, out, figured it out before. I did, but $200 to, 
to close a deal versus $1,000 to close the deal, but you're trying to target a lifetime value of 15000 so that's why it's a lot cheaper. Like you may get fewer of them, but it's also costing you less. So you might as well put it out there. Yeah, and even on top of that, if we say you got to have a lifetime value of 15000 or or more in North America, uh, if your clicks are costing a seventh as much elsewhere, you can divide that that uh, that lifetime value by seven as well to, to get a good idea of like where is worth our investment. Um, oh, okay. So whereas you might only do um, Jaguars in the U.S., you might be able to also do, although if I, you say Toyota, Honda, Chevrolet in South America, they're still outrageously expensive. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, but you could, like Chevrolet could advertise in, in South America, but you probably wouldn't want to in North America. Right, right, right. Because of the relative value of it. Oh, that's so fascinating. So, okay. So if you've got a marketing person who is um, going to do this and they have to all of a sudden deal with languages and keywords and other languages, how do you go about suggesting they do the research and making sure the keywords are the right ones? Well, first you go to Wendy. <laughs> uh, here's, the, here's the thing. Like when you're going after a different language, you really do need native level competency to make sure that you're, you're saying something in, in a, 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 really, uh, a, a really concrete kind of way. Because um, you don't want your ad to sound like you don't know what you're talking about or, or have grammatical errors and stuff. It just, it doesn't put you in the right light. You're not starting out on the right the right foot. So if you can work with Rapport International and (laughs) you have people who are like, they know exactly the skills, the groups to go after. They know that the ad copy is, it sounds like a native level competency. Um, Now you'll be taken seriously. So sorry to make that into an ad for you, but that's that's really what it takes. (laughs) Nothing to be sorry there. I I, I appreciate that. (laughs) So you do recommend coming to a high quality agency like us and not using Google. Yeah, I mean, you sure can. But when when we think about LinkedIn advertising and when, when and where people are seeing these ads, Oftentimes, this is the first time they've ever heard of you before. This is the first time they've, first interaction with your brand. So if you start out with like how a lot of the, the uh, Amazon product descriptions that were written from Asian countries sound like to us, like is that the introduction of your super high quality brand that you want people to see? Probably not. So you, right. could, you could do yourself a big favor by like getting good translation, having good native level competency. Okay. Okay. Right. So I wondered if you were seeing clients trying to do that or give you translation that were done in Google. So you're giving them good advice to make sure yeah. they're getting the high quality done. Exactly. Yeah, and, and are your clients open to it? Um, I would say usually it depends on the level of, of sophistication of the marketing team. Uh, you'll have some teams who are just ultra, uh, they're, they're moving fast. They're, they're trying to just like growth hack and they're saying, oh, we'll cut corners here and there. We just need to, to prove this concept out. So you'll have those who are doing the Google translation um, and then you'll have those who understand that this is really like putting our best foot forward with our best potential clients. Like maybe we use a Google translation for Facebook, but for LinkedIn, we're going to go, we're going to go like serious on it. <laughs> 
Okay. And what percentage of your clients do you think actually go international? Uh, I would say probably 10%. So not a huge number, but enough that, enough that, that, you know, we we talk about uh, different languages and different targeting a, a good bit. And what is the difference between your clients that are thinking global versus not? Ooh, usually it's the larger budget. It's the, the more sophisticated advertisers. You'll find that if you have a small budget, you might as well test it in a small uh, geographic location, one where you have native competency in the language. But once you've nailed that and you're ready to scale, that's when you start thinking globally. Um, and I'd say it's that way for most advertisers. So if you've got a budget of 50,000 or more, you're probably, you know, advertising internationally. And if you're spending like, you know, 5,000 a month, you're probably going to stay in your own, uh, in your own country. Okay. So it's really by marketing budget, not by company size, number of employees, industry. Yeah, I'd think so. Um, there are, like, we've had some in, in industries where, like, the whole goal of their advertising is to, uh, we had one, one company who they target people in the Middle East um, and help them with visas to get to Canada. And so, of course, in that case, oh. yeah, we're, inter- we're advertising internationally because he wouldn't want to advertise to people in Canada <laughs> to bring them there. They're already there. Right. So that, that makes sense. And my guess is that the owner of the company was from the Middle East and moved to Canada. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, because that's what I've been trying to figure out too. So it's interesting to get your perspective on it is I, I have never been able to look at companies and say they have a certain revenue size or number of employee or anything like that. If they have uh, a CEO or a head of marketing who is a globalist, has somebody lived internationally when they were young, they're bilingual, any kind of global experience, they're more apt to think global than somebody who hasn't. And so that's why it's very interesting to look at that. But I've never, you know, so how do you, so that's more of a sociological look rather than a, um, and, and, and the reason I'm commenting on this so much is for listeners you have the potential to do this just because you're in the United States. There's so many advantages to going global. And that's what AJ is talking about here. He's nodding away, nodding away. (laughs) (laughs) So here are two things that your audience might find interesting. LinkedIn has um, some new kinds of targeting that they're releasing and they call them traits. Uh, One of them is the ability to target people who are expatriates. And then another one is targeting those uh, who are business travelers. And I would imagine that if you can target either or both of those, chances are that's someone who thinks globally and works globally. So maybe that's a good addition to put into your targeting as well. Yeah, likewise with you, because you're one of the only LinkedIn ad specialists that I know that does global marketing. So that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's very interesting information. All right, we're running out of time, and I want to get to the personal questions for you. (laughs) So I want to know a memorable cross-cultural experience. Ooh, uh, I I have to share this one because it it highlights my pride. Um, 
when I was over in Ukraine, I, I was like, I don't know, uh, a month and a half. Well, I'd say I was probably living in Ukraine for a month. And I was so hungry. I was in this meeting that was, it was an all day meeting and I didn't get a chance to have breakfast. And so by the time they let us out for lunch, I was so excited. And I, I went to this market that was just down the street and, uh, and I went up to the counter and, and what I wanted to order was just crackers and cheese and make little you know, cracker sandwiches. And I, I got up to the counter and right as soon as I opened my mouth, I realized the only thing, the only amounts I knew how to order were by kilograms. And so uh, when I went to go buy cheese, I realized I didn't know how to ask for anything less than one kilogram of cheese. And so I did, I bought a kilogram of cheese and I ate that cheese all day long. Uh, just wait, how much is a kilogram of cheese? I can't even convert that. <laughs> oh, it was like, I, I think it's like 2.7 pounds. Um, <laughs> so a huge block of cheese. Yeah, it, it's, it's an embarrassingly large amount of cheese. And of course, I, I offered it to other people. Um, I, I ended up, I, I'm not a wasteful person, but I, I ended up throwing a, a little bit away at the end of the day, like, because it's hard to eat 2.7 pounds of cheese. But <laughs> I did that because I, I didn't have, I, I, it was, again, uh, I was just too prideful to like admit that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> yes, and that's a that's a good place for for a Google app right there. If you're <laughs> yes. stuck and you're trying to order cheese, how do I order some cheese, not massive cheese? <laughs> yes, and if anyone's curious, you you order by the by the gram. So you say, I want a hundred or two hundred grams of cheese. That will do you just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And sometimes body language works too, where you just yeah. like <laughs> hold up your hands and show them. But yep. yeah, at that point when you're hungry, probably a kilo of cheese sounded fantastic. <laughs> How many crackers did you get? <laughs> oh, not enough. That's for sure. <laughs> so you got your hundred grams of crackers and a kilo of cheese. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. How about your favorite vacation? Ooh, uh, I, I love going to third world countries and, and this is like the cheap part in me coming out, but I absolutely love going where, um, where your dollar stretches so far. So I love going to Mexico. I, I love spending time in Ukraine. I, I remember I went back to Ukraine about, uh, about two years ago and I, I took all of my friends, everyone who I still knew in the city, I took them to the nicest restaurant there was. Um, it was a, an Italian restaurant. We ordered like two of everything on the menu. There was so much that we ordered so that they could take it home at the end of the night. And I totaled it up and it was $68. $68 to treat like 11 friends uh, oh to like several meals. So I, I love those. Uh, if I could choose my favorite vacation, I haven't been to Thailand, but I've heard Thailand, um, you know, anywhere in South America would be fun. Costa Rica, Puerto Rico. I, I think those are fun places. Oh, so you got a lot on your bucket list. So as yeah, soon as yes, traveling yeah. opens back up, where are you going to go first? Oh, uh, that, that's a good question. Uh, I, I'd pr I'll probably go to Mexico first just because it's, it's closer. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. I, I went to Italy uh, three years ago, and, and it was fun, but I realized how – 
how little I like being stuck on a plane for 11 hours. So I, I think I want to stay continental. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, my first trip is going to be this summer and I have uh, booked a house down on Cape Cod. So I wasn't quite ready to commit to flying yet, but at least I got nice. something in the books. <laughs> nice. Uh-huh. And how about um, your favorite foreign word? Ooh, uh, I think my favorite word has to be zamichatelna. It's it's Russian for like great or fantastic. And I just, I love the sound zamichatelna. It's just, it's a fun word to say. <laughs> so it's great or wonderful. Zamichatelna? Yeah, zamichatelna. Yeah. Zamichatelna. Oh, that's, that's great. I like that. Do you I, want I apologize for all the Russian speakers who are listening, who like you can tell my accent is awful, <laughs> but I, I love these words. Oh, I think it's great that you try. I mean, that's the biggest learning thing for anybody that's going international is just try, just experience. And as you can tell, Ukraine and Russian are, are not my languages. I speak some Spanish, French, and Italian. So uh, nice. I'm, I'm learning from you. Although, we, you know, our linguists that we have on staff are fully bilingual. So I'll have to run these words by them when I'm talking to them. <laughs> cool. I love it. Uh-huh. And so how about some final recommendations for our uh, listeners? if they they want to do some global LinkedIn ads or global business? Yeah, two things that could be interesting. Uh, number one is we created the, uh, it's a checklist of the eight things that you need in order to start advertising on LinkedIn. And we put it for free on our website. So if you go to b2linked.com slash checklist, you can download that for free. And the other one that might be interesting is, is just that understanding of anywhere in the world that you're targeting, you can, um, you can break up your campaigns by, by language. And what the language means is what language did they set their LinkedIn profile to? So mm. someone, in, uh, someone in Western Europe, they might have an English version of their profile. They might have a German. They might have a, uh, you know, an Italian or, or whatever. But... Uh, whichever language they are surfing actively in, then your ads can target them in that language. So don't be afraid to create two, three, four campaigns for every persona you're targeting, just so you can break it up by the, the language that they're preferring at that moment. Yes, yes, that's a fantastic advice. I'm so glad you brought that up because for anybody listening that's bilingual, you can easily, you can have your profile in two languages and you can even make the copy different so but actually you can have it in more you can have it in multiple languages i don't know how much it's capped out at so if you want to attract different and connect with people you don't have to have just one yeah so yeah i had a good talk with viveka von rosen about that yeah, you know her. She she yeah, connected she's us. She's fantastic. And she connected me to you and you're fantastic. So you've given <laughs> me a bunch of advice. Yeah, so, uh, and I like that. So have your profile set up in multiple languages and then also create your advertising to, to target personas. Even if you're here in the United States with people that are keeping their, their second language, it can really help. Yeah. yeah. If you're going after people who are bilingual here, you know, if you're paying eight to twelve dollars per click in English, if you switch that to Spanish, maybe you're targeting the same people, but you're getting them in a language that's you know a, a 10, 20, 30 percent discount. It's certainly worth a shot. That certainly is. 
Right, because if nobody clicks, you don't pay, and you'll be able to tell fairly quickly whether that's working for you or not. Fantastic yeah. idea. I hadn't heard that before. So I, I'm so appreciative of you sharing all this, this information and how people can increase their business. So you said that people can reach you by B2 links. So B is the letter, 2 is the number, linked.com slash checklist. How else can they reach you, AJ? You know, if, if you're listening to this, you're probably into podcasts. So I have the, the LinkedIn ad show podcast that I host. So that could be worth checking out. And if you do want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, just make sure to customize your invite and say, I heard you on Wendy's show. Um, that way I'll, I'll know to accept it. But I'd absolutely love to connect with, with any of the listeners. Okay. That is, that is more great advice from AJ is customize. Yes. If I get automated things or things that aren't customized, delete, delete, delete. Yep. So AJ Wilcox is the two letters and Wilcox is W-I-L-C-O-X. So you can find, are you the only AJ Wilcox on LinkedIn? There might be more, but I'm, I'm a chubby redheaded ginger. So I, I should be pretty easy to, to spot. Okay, and so you could probably do AJ Wilcox with b2linked.com and you're going to be yeah. the only one in. So you don't look so chubby. You look healthy to me. So. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Looking good. All, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, so listeners, thank you so much for listening. Love to have your comments and feedback on this as to whether you're doing LinkedIn advertising and if you thought about doing global advertising and, and leveraging your LinkedIn, because it certainly seems like a, a huge opportunity. If you know a company that is uh, selling globally and they might be interested in hearing about this because they, they sell a higher end product. Certainly share this episode with them because I'm sure they'll learn a lot out of it. So thank you so much. Thank you, AJ, for being here. Absolutely. Have me back anytime. Okay. And we'll talk to you soon. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.